gonna find a seat. We're gonna get started. Good morning, everybody. Good to see your faces. Today is the, the third Sunday of the season of Lent, so we're not quite halfway through the season. How's it going? How's the, did you give, everybody give something up? Or are you still, still on the wagon? Anybody uh, started justifying the reasons you can fudge a little bit? Right? I remember on spring break, we often take a trip on spring break. We didn't this year, but if we do that, I'm like, oh, no, no fasting on vacation, right? There's actually a piece of the Christian tradition that says um, no fasting on Sundays. I probably should have said that to folks who are new to Lent. No fasting on Sundays. You don't have to fast. You can. Some people don't like to um, stop because then you have to start again, which is painful. But I remember when my kids were little, we would always talk about what we were getting up for Lent and and then when I would fudge during the week, they'd be like, oh, you're eating chocolate. And I'm like, it's Sunday. This is Sunday today. Because they didn't know what day it was. And they're like, was it a Sunday? Sunday yesterday? <laughs> it's, it's painful, though. Fasting initiates pain. And, of course, the wilderness always involves a certain amount of pain. And we're really good at finding ways out of pain. Um, there's this, this monk, this teacher... Um, named Father Keating, Thomas Keating, who taught a lot about the, this kind of pain avoidance and the impact it has on our spiritual life. And he was often drawing lessons from kind of psychology and sobriety groups like AA. And he would always begin his teaching talking about the way humans are highly attuned to emotional pain. We just are. We have this innate ability to spot and avoid emotional pain if we can. And it's mostly unconscious. Like we do it without even realizing that's what we're doing. But we're highly attuned to um, and constantly react, reacting to emotional pain. Uh, mostly looking for a way out of it. And Keating, um, he teaches about this. He, he actually one time, he, um, I heard him tell a story about a mother who had had a baby and she was um, seeing a lactation specialist because her newborn wasn't nursing and they were trying everything. It wasn't working. Like her third trip there. She was frustrated, the baby was frustrated, and the nurse said, just let me take the kid, I'll turn down the lights, you just sit here and breathe and try to calm down. She took the child next door to another mother who was done with her training, nursing well, and, and said, will you try to nurse this baby? Baby latches on immediately, starts nursing like a champ. And so she comes back into the mom, and she's like, tell me about your pregnancy. And the mom just broke down. She was like, me and my husband thought we were done having kids um, we're barely making ends meet with, with the kids we already have. I turned up pregnant, and neither of us wanted this baby, but we decided we should have it, and they went through with it. But she was still deeply conflicted about it. And her lesson she was drawing from this was that this baby had already was able to pick up on this. Um, emotionally, the mother's conflict it registered to the child as emotional pain, and the child was trying to flee from it, avoid this. This is how deep this instinct is wired into us. And it's mostly unconscious. And Keating says that in response to pain, what we do is develop these um, unconscious patterns that he calls, or a lot of people, in, especially in AA, they call programs for happiness. These unconscious strategies for avoiding emotional and psychological pain that start you know, clear back in, in early childhood. 
And every stage of life, of course, seems to have its own unique way of wounding us. I mean, just think back to middle school, right? I'm still trying to get over the pain of middle school. It's just such a vicious place. And for you, it might have been some other stage of life. But we all carry wounds that we're consciously aware of. But the unconscious, is it remembers everything. And it's highly attuned to pain. So from a very early age, we start to enact these programs for happiness to avoid um, the pain of life. It's just kind of a way of saying, if I can, like, fill in the blank, I'll be happy. That's sort of what, how, how they work. I'll, I'll be happy if I can, like, a popular one is have control, right? We, we call these people control freaks, although I heard one control freak say, I'm not a control freak, I'm a control enthusiast. Anybody else, any other control enthusiasts here? I actually, I, it makes me want to own it just a little bit more that way. This is a response to pain. If we can control the environment, we don't have to feel the pain. Price started very early on for some of us. Um, but most of this, these programs, they're unconscious to us. We're blind to them. In fact, our, our entire psychology is, is organized to keep us from seeing our own program for happiness. We're highly invested in just remaining oblivious to this stuff. Anybody um, use the Enneagram at all? Anybody familiar with this? Okay, so Enneagram, this is part of what it does for us. It's nine of the kind of common patterns of emotional programs for happiness. So like, the, for the one, it's perfectionism. Keep everything in its proper place and you'll keep the pain at bay. For the two, it's like helpfulness and service. Just this will, this will smooth the way by serving everyone. For three, threes, it's achievement. Stay, stay above the pain by, by winning stuff. For fours, this is me, the, the individuality thing. We, we feel like we don't belong, so we trade some kind of performance so we'll belong. That's why I'm up here doing a little dance for you guys every week so that you'll let me belong. Um, fives, it's knowledge. Not, they try to control things by knowing more than anybody. For six, it's loyalty. They, they uh, avoid pain through never wanting anything to change, ever. S and sevens go the other way. They're the enthusiasts. They, they want everything to change always, and it should be fabulous. And eights, um, they kind of work this through control and often conflict and often appeals to kind of righteous morality. And nines, everybody's favorite, the peacemakers, they just, they avoid pain by appeasing everyone around them. That's why they're so easy to get along with. So Enneagram, this is really kind of part of what it does. It exposes our programs for happiness and how we try to avoid pain. But there are also kind of more universal um, methods for this, like blaming. I mean, blaming is pain avoidance, full stop. Anytime you find yourself blaming or scapegoating somebody, you are in pain, and you are trying to run from that pain. Um, numbing, very similar. Take a pill, have a drink, eat, shop, so you don't have to feel your feelings. Um, cynicism is another one. Just try to stand at a, at a detached distance so we don't have to care, even though we do care. Or one of the most common ones, um, uh, modes of pain avoidance, is projection. It really took psychology to to reveal this because we're so good at hiding it from ourselves. Um, but, um, and this is, by the way, 
true of all of them, but especially of projection, it's, it's for this. You know, we don't want to see our program for happiness. We just want it to work, because if we spot it, it'll stop working. So one of the ways we sort of defend ourselves against seeing it, against the pain, you might say, of self-discovery, is projection. By, by denying our programs for happiness while attributing them to others, right? That's projection. So for example, um, the extent to which, say, your pride offends me is the extent to which probably my own problem is pride in my own life, right? And I'm super offended by this right now, even. Um, I wish some of you got the joke. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I wish I could say we sort of naturally grow out of these things, but we don't. We don't. In fact, sometimes it gets worse. You get older and you have a little more license, a little more freedom to just enact them. And so what, what happens is these programs for happiness, which began as a way to avoid pain, begin to cause deeper problems, usually in our relationships. I mean, it gets really old dealing with somebody who's stuck in some pattern of pain avoidance. And, and so eventually, um, the, the programs we've created to guard ourselves from pain become the source of our pain, usually by tanking our relationships. And if our, if our program is gaining power and control, we'll never have enough of that, so we'll just start like manipulating people, which causes problems. If our program's about like generating affirmation and approval, we'll feel constantly underappreciated and underaffirmed or approved or whatever. And so we'll annoy people trying to get them to notice us and, and approve of us. If our program's about safety and security, then we'll never feel safe enough. We'll be always reticent, always taking chances, always trying to reel people in, stuff like that. This strains the relationships with those we love until finally it comes crashing down. Almost always this happens to people around midlife, or it can come sooner, sooner with some kind of trauma. But we start to experience the kind of results of this depression, dissatisfaction, anxiety, self-sabotage, a big old identity crisis, some kind of addiction, infidelity, just something <laughs> comes out of the woodwork that kind of pushes us into the wilderness, so to speak, to face our own pain. And so so step, step back for a minute and think about this. We're born into the world highly attuned to emotional, psychological pain, looking for a way out of it. And so we engage these programs for happiness that shield us from the pain for a while, but over time, they sort of build up in the unconscious. They bog us down. They prevent us from growing as a person. They trap us in these patterns that tank our relationships. And eventually, they start to cause, cause serious problems. And eventually, they become a huge source of, of pain. But here's the thing. I mean, what do we know? What do we know about pain? Well, pain is basically one of the only things powerful enough to force us to change and grow. So it's almost as if sort of unconsciously we, we create our own crises. We, we initiate some painful circumstance because on some level we know we got to learn how to face our own pain and let it change us and grow us as human beings. It's actually one of the reasons that I'm 
um, still a Christian, is that at the heart of the Christian story is this deep conviction that the pain of life, just like the inevitable suffering of life, um, is not waste. It's not meant to torture us. It's not God being angry at us and getting us because we're sinning or whatever. Pain is meant to open us up to new realities, new ways of being that Jesus called the kingdom of God. And and it does this kind of by prying our program for happiness out of our hands and, and then setting us free. Pain shatters those things. It shatters our illusions about God and opens us up to an experience of the God who really is, right? Not the God who we have safely described. Barbara Taylor has talked about this a lot, and I love the way she talks about it. This, this is a, a quote from her. She said, not to accept suffering, she's talking about pain, as a normal, inevitable part of being alive seems like a big mistake. And finding ways to cover it up seems like choosing anesthesia. There's a sense in which if I will trust that what comes to me is for me, and then she kind of looked it up at the camera and breaks and says, that's the hugest faith statement I can make to you. If I will trust that what comes to me, the pain that comes to me in my life is for me and not against me, what I find is that it breaks my idols, that it breaks my isolation, that it challenges my sense of independence. It does all kinds of things for me that I would not willingly do that are for me, that are for my health. If you ever want to snap a picture of a Barbara Brown Taylor quote, snap a picture of that one. Like this, this is a good one. That's, she's describing pain to a T. So in essence, learning, learning to face our pain is kind of advanced Christian discipleship. And I think it's an essential route to spiritual maturity. The problem is we're highly attuned to pain and we are seriously motivated to find a way out of it. And so part of how we train ourselves to embrace this path to spiritual maturity is by entering into seasons of wilderness, initiating a little bit of pain. And this is really the role that Lent is meant to play within the church calendar. During Lent, we we do these little fasts. And and the point is just to kind of disrupt our programs for happiness. We initiate a little bit of pain through fasting, and then we try to notice how we cope with that pain. And and suddenly, kind of our unconscious programs for happiness become apparent. We can see them for the first time. And sort of the, the, the overarching spiritual discipline of Lent involves just noticing what we, what we usually would do, and then instead of doing that, stay with the pain and invite Christ into that space with us, noticing the ways in which Christ meets us in the wilderness and helps us see the games that we play that end up causing us so much trouble. And this, this is part of what Jesus is working in this text that we read a little bit earlier from Luke 13. It says, at that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So some folks come up to Jesus and they ask him about, you know, like this thing from the headlines of of the day, something Pilate had done. 
back then all Jewish males had to go to Jerusalem once a year to make a sacrifice. They, most of them usually went um, on Passover, and so the city was was bloated with people for this festival that culminates in, in this massive sacrifice of Passover lambs. Every Jewish family had to sacrifice a lamb same day, same place, same time. And there was often political unrest in the city during this time because it was filled with Jewish people who were under Roman rule, protesting often. Riots often happened. Apparently, recently, that year, a bunch of Galileans had staged a protest and Pilate's soldiers quelled it, killing a bunch of the dissidents right there in the temple as they were making their sacrifices, and the blood of the victims kind of mingled together with the blood of the sacrifices. It was something, something like that happened. This was, this was the scandal of the day, and it had filled the people with all their, you know, blaming, projection, whatever, whatever their program was, and this was one of their main programs for happiness as a people, is blaming, and... Um, in that, we'll probably know different, you know, especially when you feel powerless. Blame works great. And so they love to blame Rome for everything. And of course, Pilate, we know, gave him plenty of material for blaming. He, he marched around Jerusalem with flags that had pagan images on him. This is it was offensive to the Jewish people. He had these shields installed in the temple um, that displayed writing on it that exalted Caesar as God in the temple, like, he would hang um, pagan effigies and statues all around Jerusalem. He one time seized a bunch of funds from the Jewish treasury to build himself an aqueduct, and he would often disguise his own soldiers during these festivals to mix in with the people and, and incite violence with the protesters. He just seemed to relish brutality and violence. And so these people come to Jesus, they're, they're complaining about Pilate, their expectation is he'll join in and blame Pilate for everything, but he doesn't. And his response is so peculiar that when you read it, it kind of seems like insensitive. He says, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. I mean, essentially, he's saying to them in part, do you really think you're better than the Romans in this way? You're involved, man. You're doing this too. Your hearts are so filled with contempt for these guys, it blinds you to the ways that you're caught up in the same cycle of hatred and violence. He says, if you don't repent, the same fate awaits you. Has this ever happened to you? When you like go to one of your friends or your spouse or something, and you're like, ticked off about something you tell about it and they don't take your side and then they point out to you how you're responsible for whatever's happening this is the worst man this is so so annoying we're not looking for the truth man we're looking for an accomplice like that's what we want in that moment our program for happiness and then someone holds up a mirror and forces us to see what we don't want to see and all of a sudden we're just stuck with the pain of it what are we supposed to do with all this pain? And so Jesus kind of um, takes this example of an injustice and says, you're going to have to deal with your pain or you'll end up perishing just like these Galileans did. Sure, the Romans stink. They're a legitimate problem. 
you got to stop blaming them for everything and start to look at yourself. Look at the lesson this might teach you about your own role in all this. It's extremely annoying and, you know, accurate. And then he brings up this, this other incident. He kind of pivots here to an accident, a tragedy. This tower of Siloam, this, this big tower, this part of the fortifications of the city that had this pool at the bottom of it, it, it collapsed and crushed like 18 innocent bystanders. And so Jesus kind of walks them through this little thought experiment. He says, why do you think this happened to them? Do you think that they were like worse sinners than all the others living in Jerusalem? That was kind of the common belief. If some tragedy, random tragedy happened to people, what they thought is they had some secret sin that only God knew about, and, and that's, that's why this happened. God's punishing them. I mean, think of like, um, think of the story of Job. Job's friends come to him, they're like, what'd you do? You must have done something, right? This is on you somehow. Or think of, um, more recently, the man born blind. They come to Jesus and say, who died, or who, um, who sinned here that he was blind? Was it his parents or was it him? And by the way, that takes place at the pool of Siloam, which is interesting. But here Jesus is kind of stealing away that blaming program for happiness. Their impulse to blame in order to discharge the pain of, like in the first example, the Roman injustice, but here just some tragic accident. He just kind of steals that away. And it's interesting. I think this draws out the way that, you know, all of our, our methods for avoiding pain, blaming, numbing, cynicism, projection, all of our programs for happiness. It's interesting. All of them, they all have an inverse relationship with accountability, if you think about that. The, the more we numb or blame or, or project on others, the less, accountability, or less accountable we become for that situation and for our own lives, and just for the brokenness of the world in general that causes so much pain. And it's almost like Jesus is going, it's, it's sort of a waste of, of pain to do this. Because pain carries so much energy for change. I mean, you're, you think of your like, pinky fingernail. If, if something goes haywire here, that tiny little pain can control your whole body for as long as the pain lasts. It has incredible energy, pain does, to propel us toward change and growth. But if we can discharge that pain somehow, that we dissipate all that energy. And this is part of how we just avoid accountability in our lives. All those things have an inverse relationship with accountability. So Jesus here, he seems to want to get his followers to stay with the pain of injustice in one case, of just like tragedy in the other, and somehow see, see what that pain might produce in us. How we might, you know, become more accountable for like the state of the world symbolized by Pilate's injustice or, or just the everyday brokenness around us. He wants, wants them to stay with the pain of those things as part of their discipleship and their path to spiritual maturity. And I think there's something to this move from like the larger injustice, political injustice, then down to just like a senseless random tragedy. You know, with politics, it's easy to, it's easy to blame Cynicism is, I mean, that's a real good stance for avoiding the pain of politics. 
And so he, he moves it to something just more random. This tower falls and crushes a bunch of people. And he says, how do you, you know, how do you discharge the pain of that? What are you going to, you blame God? You blame the people? That's the common road. And he's like, all you can do is just stay with the pain of it. When we're in pain and refuse to turn to some program for happiness, we stay with it. Something really interesting happens. If you think about that, especially with the tragedy, if you'll stay with the pain, what's the very next affect that comes online? My assertion is that um, most of the time, it's compassion. That's the next move our soul makes. If we're coming to a situation and you're like hot and you're, you know, ready to, you're angry and ready to blame somebody, you're projecting or whatever, and then you meet that person and there's tears and there's genuine sorrow and it just dissipates all that stuff. It's just gone. And you're just left with, you're overwhelmed, almost like overtaken by compassion for them. I think that's what he's talking about. If we'll stay with that pain, very often, um, pain has a way of drawing us toward one another with compassion. Compassion is just, it's passio, suffer, co, calm, with. It just means suffer with another. And I think he's, I think he's revealing something like deep and mysterious about the kingdom of God and about the nature of what it means to be a human being. And this is one of those things that I think a lot of times I mean, a high, high percentage, 90% of what passes for Christianity, at least in America, gets this wrong. They draw out pain and tension, and then they tell you how Jesus solves it. And this is not what he does most of the time. Rather, it's you draw out the pain and the tension, and he makes it worse. He like pushes you deeper into it and says, stay, stay with it to see See how God might use this to help you kind of shed a skin, help you grow a little bit. Because the pain of life is powerful. It can drive us um, closer to one another in compassion or farther from one another in, in whatever blaming, projecting, or some other program, some other means of escaping accountability. And here, Christ seems to be asking us to choose, choose that first one. And you think about the entire kind of logic of the Christian gospel. This is, this is it. And the whole story is that God draws near to humanity in our pain. And somehow the, the power of that presence can transform us and transform the world in something brand new can emerge. It's not just like error correction, fixing the pain. It's drawing with us in the pain and just holding the tension until resurrection happens, until something new, brand new, unexpected comes out of it. Now, it's not that we want to um, ignore the pain of injustice or, or um, that we want to just let other people, especially the powerful, off scot-free for their role in those things. It's just that, like, the, the blame, the projection, they discharge the pain. They help us avoid accountability. And it sort of, it ends up, like, dissipating all of the energy 
Barbara Taylor called it anesthesia. She often says this, Christianity is in essence to agree to live life without the benefit of anesthesia. You're going to feel everything. And this is, Christ says, this is a better way to live. I mean, even with a senseless tragedy, I mean, even those kind of things can draw us closer to God and to one another. One of my best um, friends in ministry, Marta Gilliland, who's part of AMO, this group that I'm part of, we retreat together. Um, Twice a year we meet together. Once a month, she lost her husband to cancer this week. It's like my age. It's heartbreaking. It's senseless. There's no way to, there's no program for happiness to fix this one. It's just pain. And yet we know if we'll refuse to numb or blame or reject or some other program for happiness, if we'll be brave and stay with the pain, I don't mean as a way of punishing ourselves, not like that, but just to tell the truth about it and stay with it. We know something new can be born from that. This is the gospel, because after death comes resurrection. That's the Christian story. Not that death and injustice and tragedy can be avoided somehow. They can't. And if we try that, we'll just hurt ourselves and others. It's that new life can be born from these things. It's a big part of what Jesus is revealing here in this this story, especially in light of the fact that just a few chapters ago, he said, I'm headed toward Jerusalem. He is on his way to his own death. And these, these past five years, as we've walked together, I've watched um, Marta change and grow as a human being. I mean, she has this strength now. She did not have at the beginning. It's unbelievable. She has this wisdom, this peace. It's really it's, it's compelling all because she stayed with the pain. She didn't numb or, you know, jump to a program for happiness or project. She stayed with it. And at the same time, I saw her community just come, come around her with compassion and great tenderness. They, they suffered with her and Steve. Didn't give her, you know, platitudes. Just let their presence be enough. And, and I think if you... You look at their life, new life can be found all over their story, even in the place of death. There's a sense in which I think Jesus is really offering us a new model for how to respond to the pain of life. Don't turn to a program for happiness. Don't blame and project. Man, those two words, blaming, projecting, these are huge. we got to learn to spot this. Don't do that. Stay with the pain. Let it drive us toward one another and God. Um, In in essence, a lot of times all this means is we just lament. We just cry out under the pain and say, this this totally sucks. This this can't be the way life is supposed to be. And that's all we got. We just stop there and and then say, come Lord Jesus. How long, O Lord? We use the words of scripture. Bear witness to the brokenness of the world. Invite God into that place and and keep, then just keep faithing it through it. Our story ends with, with Jesus telling this little parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He said to the gardener, see here, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. 
Why should it be wasting the soil? And he, the gardener, replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. If not, you can cut it down. Of course, in the scriptures, fig tree is never just a fig tree. It's a, it's a symbol of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. And a tree is often a symbol of human life. You know, we're, Psalms say we're supposed to be like trees planted near living water. And you can judge every tree by its, its fruit. And so in the par- parable, this, this man has waited for these trees to bear fruit for three years. Remember, Jesus' ministry has been going on about three years this time. But it hasn't happened. So the, the owner says, cut it down. And, and the gardener, um, remember Jesus is sometimes portrayed as a gardener. Mary mistakes him for the gardener after the resurrection. The gardener says, give it one more year. Just one more year. Let me work with it a little bit. Let me pour manure on its, on its roots. Manure is just dead stuff, right? The broken stuff of life, the rubbish, the waste, the pain of life. So Jesus is, is the gardener here. And his response to how we can't do this very well, his response to the fact that lots of times we don't stay with the pain when we move to some program for happiness. His response is, how about one more year? How about we just give a little more time for this fruit to grow? Because his mission is a mission of, of mercy and grace. He's like, you know, I know you got one chance of this life and you're super scared and you're very fragile and vulnerable. And I know the pain of injustice makes you crazy. And you're, you're blaming and projecting. It just has you kind of stuck in this cycle of violence. And you're going to have to repent or it's going to destroy you. And he says, I know the pain of senseless tragedy makes you crazy. But you can't blame God or blame the victims. You're going to have to learn to stay in it. Repent. Stay in the pain. See what happens. And, and it will lead you to God and it will show you how much you need one another. And for us, well, I'll say, I'll say for me. For me, and you might feel this too. I think most of my biggest mistakes in my life um, have come in response to pain and my attempts to avoid it. And... Jesus doesn't say, gotcha, in response to that. He doesn't ask for judgment or retribution. He asks for one more year to bear fruit. That's grace. Grace means infinite second chances. Just always one more year to bear fruit. Thank God. And he he keeps... Twice in the story, he repeats the invitation, repent, like you need to turn around and go the other way, or this is going to kill you. Embrace this new model for how to deal with the brokenness of of the world. Stop trying to avoid the pain. Stay with it. Let it be your teacher. Let it drive, drive you toward one another and toward God, and you will become witnesses, Arturus, in the presence of the light and light and goodness and wholeness that comes only from God, even justice, even peace. 
in the midst of broken realities. And, and then he says, he ends it all with, and when you fail, endless second chances, man. One more year to bear fruit, always. It's that um, big playwright, Samuel Beckett. He says, fail again, fail better. That's it, that's grace. Fail, keep, tr try, fail, try again, fail again, fail better. This is it. This is how we move um, toward this new creation. And, and grace means endless second chances. Thank God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the season of Lent and a chance to try to see the ways we avoid pain. And we, we thank you for this, this story. It's such a weird story. I'm just glad we have to read it every three years. And um, watch Jesus kind of just tenderly and graciously walk his people into pain and say, you've got to learn to stay with this. And I pray that we would um, push aside that temptation to, um, to bear witness to the, the pain of life and then blame or become cynical, numb out project or whatever, control. I pray that you would help us to spot our programs and leave them behind. Because we want so much to live in a world that is more just, where the wicked don't prosper and don't lord over everyone else and where everyone has enough to live on. Everybody has an, enough to flourish. Everyone can know their life matters. We want there to be justice. But help us to see our own complicity in this and not turn to blaming. Help us to stay with the pain long enough to get moving and working for justice and for the tragedies of life and just the ordinary brokenness, God. Help us to be brave to share it with others and not numb out or hide it. Help us to see ourselves more clearly and you more clearly. All um, to the glory of Christ who taught us this lesson. We pray. Amen. We invite you to stand if you would, and we're going to receive communion. The way that we do this at Redemption is just the ushers will dismiss us row by row. You can come forward and, and um, you'll be offered the bread and the cup, and they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can just respond by saying amen or say, um, I will remember, or just however you feel comfortable responding. The reason that we do this is because on the night when Christ was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and after he had given thanks, he passed it around to his followers, and he said, um, this, this bread is my body. Every time you get together, eat this bread in remembrance of me. And then he did the same thing with the cup after supper. He passed it around, they all drank from it. He said, this, is, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, a new deal between you and God established through my life. So he said, whenever you gather, eat this bread, drink this cup, take my life 
into your life and remember what you're made out of. And so this is why we receive communion every week. And it's why we call on everybody who calls on the name of Christ to join us at the table. Um, so if you would, I invite you just to pray with me as we bless it. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of, of, your, of your grace. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?